We're going to start our time together this morning in actually Luke chapter 13. You know, if you've been here for a few years, you know I usually only pause my sermon series for maybe Easter and Christmas. And, uh, but I guess whenever a worldwide virus comes through and America looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, Maybe I should take a moment to see what the Lord would might say to this. I, I've been brewing on this topic for a few weeks. And um, lately, we've just had news that really makes you want to die. <laughs> like, I tap out. I'm done. <laughs> and begin us thinking about our topic today, I want to just invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's word in Luke chapter 13. We're going to just read verses 1 through 5 together. It says, There was some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's uh, pause and pray on those uplifting words. (laughs) Father, many of us look at the news, and if we're honest, we either have moments, days, weeks, seasons of fear, wonder what you're doing. Like Habakkuk, we have tough questions. Where are you? Do you see all the injustice? Where you're at? What are you doing? Father, we, uh, we want to hear a word from you as we do every Sunday. We pray that you would speak to our condition, speak to the condition of this nation. Most of all, show us how to be continually obedient to what you would have us do in this time. And we know it's not fear. We know it's not complain. But, Father, we know that you have called us to be your kingdom and 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 the world's kingdoms. Help us, Lord Jesus. Thank you again for your shed blood for our sins. Help us to to take heart. Uh, what you said in Matthew 7, that before we're quick to judge, continue to allow us to see where we need to repent and help us to be who it is you want us to be. And it's only possible through your grace, spirit, and power. Yeah, we ask and pray for your voice to be heard today and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Christy and I sat down Thursday morning with some pastor friends and the subject came up uh, and maybe you've had similar conversations and the subject came up as when will things get back to what we consider normal? (laughs) Will there ever be a somewhat normal? And, And we all were glad that we live in small town Idaho and even the protests came to Lewiston a few weeks ago, but nothing so major and big has has happened in our area, it seems, as in big cities across the nation. 
But with the coronavirus, with the George Floyd protests, with conspiracy theories, with more Supreme Court rulings that seems to favor LGBT rights to the detriments of religious rights, with police defunding, we start to scratch our heads. We start to wonder, when will these things come to a head? We start to wonder what kind of world are our kids and grandkids inheriting? What will life look like? Is there a civil war brewing? And we get so invested and so worried and so concerned and and part of us feels responsible to do something and part of us feels and wonders, what can we do? (laughs) And I began to, to, to think about this passage a few weeks ago because on the outset it sounds like it presents us with a Jesus that seems very unfeeling. Does it not? I mean, there are, there are three preoccupations being presented in this passage. One seems to be the preoccupation of those coming to Jesus. It could have been some disciples. It could be some of Jesus, uh, people just listening to Jesus' sermon on the plain. Where we're at in Luke is, is basically his telling of the Sermon on the Mount in some ways. And, and their preoccupation seems to be with, uh, current events. The news. That's, that's our preoccupation. We'll get into it. Some pretty big preoccupations. But then, the latter two are those that Jesus is concerned about. The reality of sin and the urgency of salvation. The reality of sin and the urgency of salvation. First, let's hear about the current events. Again, the passage begins with this. There were some present at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So we're not told about the particulars of this event in any other place in history, just the Bible. Well, I agree, I believe that the Bible does present to us factual history. But what seems to have happened is, is perhaps some Galileans, northern Israel, the, the area where Jesus is from and does his ministry. Perhaps they came to Jerusalem to begin offering sacrifices, and while at the temple, Pilate seems to send some soldiers down to slay them while they are worshiping, and thereby mixing their own blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they're offering at the temple. It could be it could be that the Galileans had broken some laws and Pilate was already after them. It could have been some sort of usual unrest that was happening uh, with the temple or in Jerusalem already. And maybe Pilate wanted to show his power. And maybe the Galileans were the unlucky ones who got to be the examples. It could be any number of things. Nevertheless, they were likely slain in the act of worship. Just like we hear churches being shot up during worship, synagogue shootings and stabbings and the like. Well, it seems to us in the general flow of this passage, this was not an unknown event to Jesus. In fact, Jesus would present another event, another tragedy. But then what's interesting is that he seems to equate the two. Though in the mind of the others, it may not be so equitable. The other event that Jesus presents, shown to us in verse 4, is he says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. This event is equally unknown outside of Luke. But we do know that there was a pool 
of Siloam outside the wall in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, in fact, did a miracle connected to that pool, so it's not hard to imagine that perhaps a tower existed near nearby, some tower that apparently fell and tragically killed 18 people in its path. And so again, what's interesting to me is that Jesus equates a slaying at the temple, which is unthinkable in the Jewish mind, a place of much reverence and holiness, a, a place where um, a slaughter of worshipers would be in front of the very presence of God. And then another tragedy, a tower which kills 18 people. And though it be a tragedy, it may appear to most Jewish thinkers to be in a separate category. Well, that's tragic, but it's a whole lot different. Sadly, we do this too. You and I almost expect soldiers to die in battle. We expect uh, gang fights in big cities. We expect abortions. But when shootings happen at churches, well, that's a different horribleness altogether. I think about Columbine and a few other school shootings in which the world did watch in horror, but then the horror seemed to be amped up, a different kind of horror, when the Amish school in Nickel Mines or when a bunch of elementary kids died in Sandy Hook. But Jesus equates the two current events in this time. The slaughter of worshippers at the temple by Pilate by Rome and a tower, a tragic accident, ending the lives of 18 people. How does he equate the two? First, we see this in, in this discussion, a discussion around the reality of sin. After the people present to him the, the horrible event of Pilate slaughtering worshipers at the temple, Jesus asks the question, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, the horror of something like nickel mines, innocent Amish school children, in a, a quaint, more wholesome and, and better education than the like of many public schools, we might think, dying from some madman, and we might ask these questions, why? What did they do? Jesus, perhaps probing the hearts of his askers, much like he probed the hearts of Pharisees who were ready to pounce on Jesus because he forgives sins or heals on the ha- Sabbath, Jesus knows the wonder, were these Galileans a special kind of sinner? <laughs> What did they do so that even in the innocence and the holiness and the reverence of the very presence of God that they were not safe? But Jesus equates it again and he he takes the ruthless murder and he says, this is just like the tragic accident of the 18 who died from the Tower of Siloam falling. And again, he asks there, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Right? Do we think that hundreds who died in the Twin Towers in New York in 01 were somehow worse offenders than the rest of New York City? Do we think the cops who have died uh, trying to protect their cities and the looting and the rioting are worse than other cops? Do we think that those who have died from coronavirus while others have survived the sickness, are there spiritual reasons for this? And here's what strikes me. It could be, and in fact, I'm willing to lean into saying that it is the case that the people who brought this to Jesus were interested in the possibility of spiritual guilt or the possibility of, is this judgment for those who died in the temple? Some of us are more just taken back by the sheer tragedy of it all. 
Well, those poor worshipers who died trying to worship God in the temple, those poor souls who were in harm's way when the tower fell. And Do you note Jesus' focus? Do you see the ultimate preoccupation that Jesus has? He knows current events. Everything suggests he knew exactly what they were talking about. He also brought up another current event. Jesus is up to date on current events. He doesn't live in a holy vacuum. But he's not preoccupied with them. See, he didn't broach the subject in his teaching. Right? He doesn't say, and now that I've told you how to pray, and now I've told you to settle with your accuser, and now i told you what anger and lust are in your heart, I'd like to take these next few minutes to talk to you about some current events. No, he didn't say that. He Rather, he entered into the subject due to the urging of some of his listeners. And he, in some ways, redirected their thinking. He, he, maybe he redirects our thinking. He doesn't speculate on the sins of those who died. He, he doesn't use the time to lament about the sheer tragedy and the injustice and Pilate needs to pay and those builders in the tower need to be investigated. But he, he uses this to talk about the urgency of salvation. Verses three and five are verbatim the same. In response to Pilate defiling the temple by mixing the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifices, Jesus again says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in response to the tower falling on the 18 people, Jesus says, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So after this quick reading and this quick hearing of what Jesus says, here's how I feel personally. Well, yes, Jesus, but that feels really self-absorbed. Even if it's self-reflective in the where have I sinned sort of fashion. Like, like here's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell. Hey, yes, those worshipers were slain at the temple along with their sacrifices. It was a bloody mess. And those 18 folks died when the Tower of Siloam fell. But instead of being focused on that, know this. Whether slaughtered, squished, or natural causes or whatever, you'll perish too. (laughs) Because you're guilty of sin. You better repent or perish. I mean, ouch. Thanks, Jesus. That really helps. That's teared me up. Was, Was that all those asking Jesus the question, was that all they were interested in? Were they that self-concerned? Or was there any shade or color or ounce in their curiosity coming from a lamentation or a concern Those poor worshipers. Would any curiosity about the tower provoke in any person? Those livelihoods ripped. Those dads, those sons, those daughters, those mothers. All those lives taken from their families for seemingly no reason except for the tower to have fallen. And all Jesus has to offer is, yep, it'll happen to you one way or another unless you repent. Maybe this is wrong of me as a Christian. I really don't think it is, but... I'm just not willing to read this one passage in a vacuum separated from all the passages about Jesus' true love, care, concern, and compassion. I'm not willing to just let this response of Jesus to allow me to color His disposition so harshly. So instead of believing that Jesus would overlook suffering and say, forget about those lost lives, just think about your own sin and be moved to repent, I have to assume that Something deeper is happening here. 
See, oftentimes, in fact, Jesus, like many Jews, he uses extremes to make a point. When Jesus says, whoever doesn't hate their own family cannot be my disciple, Jesus, in a sense, meant that. But the more better and comfortable and still accurate sense, he means it whenever Matthew records for us, whoever loves their family more than me cannot be my disciple. See, the hate part was meant to emphasize the amount and the passion that followers and disciples of Jesus should have for Jesus far outdo and far outweigh any passion and devotion one might have for their families. Here's what I think. Jesus wants us to hear the suggested indifference that he has for those two undoubtable tragedies. And that indifference is shown when considering the consequences of sin ruining one's own lives. One is more serious than the other, even though that other one seems pretty serious to us. Jesus did this with healing paralytics, right? Another tragedy, we talked about this a few weeks ago. A paralytic is lowered before Jesus, obviously in need of healing. But what's the first thing that Jesus says? Your sins are forgiven. (laughs) No healing having taken place yet. But a way to show what's more serious to the paralytic is to forgive him those sins because those sins were more deadly than the paralysis he's living in. Unforgiven sins are more deadly than a slaughter at the temple or a tower falling. Well, how does this further speak to us in our own time when we're consumed with coronavirus protests, civil unrest? Am I suggesting that we should ignore the news indifferently and be self-absorbed with guilt over sin? Yes, go home. No, just kidding. Here's what I think. This one story shows how Jesus approaches current events, even as tragic as they are. But the biggest realities and the most serious news that you and I face each and every day are spiritual realities. Spiritual realities. I want to unpack how spiritual realities should reorient our focus We'll do that by considering another time where Jesus redirected the focus for his hearers. And then we'll consider from Paul what kind of war we do wage. First of all, consider with me the example of the church in Acts. In the opening of Acts, we already actually talked about this same passage last week for different reasons. But the opening of Acts starts with Jesus' ascension. And right before Jesus ascended, we see again that redirection of Jesus. We see a preoccupation on part of the disciples and a preoccupation on part of Jesus, and they weren't the same. Jesus redirects their attention, and he says, well, the spiritual realities taking place are more important, more pressing, and more serious. We read in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, so that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you see that redirection? It's it's sprinkled all over the gospel accounts that often the disciples, they have this blueprint for Jesus. Do any of you ever have a blueprint for Jesus? (laughs) Jesus, here's the blueprint, here's the plan, here's the kingdom I'm building. So now you know... uh, You you just start making it happen. We'll be good. (laughs) The blueprint for the disciples and others in first century Judea and Jews today is a political, physical king Messiah. The return of King David, a return to Israel to bring the kingdom to be reckoned with. 
And in Jesus' day, in the disciples' day, we have well-overtaxed, conquered Israelites. We have pilots feeling like that they can just murder worshipers at the temple. We have King Herod's murdering babies out of fear that one of them might take his throne. And to combat that, besides Jesus, there were other false messiahs rising up, zealous and, and, and rebellious, constantly trying to reclaim Israel independence. And the disciples believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, now he's resurrected. He show him, he's shown himself to be a far better Messiah than anyone expected. He's invincible, so you can't kill him. So Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the preoccupation. Will you make the Pilate stop murdering? Will you finish off the corrupt, hypocritical priesthood that just played a part in your crucifixion? Will you free our people from their conquered state, their overtaxation? Let me get a bit closer to home. Lord Jesus, will you remove us from the pagan Romans and their perverse sexuality so we can raise our kids in a better world? Jesus, will you remove the pagan godless leaders we have in our nation? Will you make sure that they don't persecute us with rules and legislation? Make sure they don't that we don't have to endure deaths like you faced, Jesus. We might find our world bad, but the apostles had to endure their world. Do you see the redirection of Jesus? His ultimate desire is verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're in the book of Acts every Sunday right now. What, what becomes the plot line? What, what the disciples wanted or what Jesus wanted? What Jesus wanted. It's about how the disciples work in their own power and try to restore the kingdom of Israel. No, it's not. Redirection, a reorientation of focus. It's not that Rome's oppression of Israel is not tragic. Nobody ever says that. Some of Jesus' healing, some of His callings consequently undoes some damage inflicted by the world they're in. The calling of Matthew is a tax collector hated by his fellow Jews because he was working for the Romans. The salvation of Mary Magdalene, a woman of the world, no doubt had by many of the Roman soldiers. Jesus' own resurrection, no doubt, has some implications for the Roman officials who let this guy get away. Maybe their lives paid the cost. But Jesus' focus in a world of sin, in a fallen world, in a world with powers all vying for their own will, is a kingdom grown by sowing seeds in the gospel into the hearts and minds of men. Jesus changes the world from inside out. See, one point in time when the disciples were so certain that the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be was a political warrior king with physical restored kingdom, two of the disciples, John and James, began fighting about who among the twelve was the greatest. Right? Jesus is king, we got that, but who's going to be vice president? (laughs) Who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Mark chapter 10 tells us in this point of the story, and Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. This tells me that the way that the world works and the way of the kingdom of God works are two different systems. See, the powers that be lorded over people, regulate, enact laws, show authority, show force to bring about the changes wanted. But for us, we serve our way into influence. We love, we serve. The only exercising of power we do is the Holy Spirit's power. And that Holy Spirit's power is expressed by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we live in a world that is filled with expectations of power and domination and the kind of lording over that Jesus describes here. And we are tempted to ask, do those fruits of the Holy Spirit truly ever get anything done? Look at the book of Acts. Look at the church worldwide today. It's been ushered in by the kingdom with King Jesus at the helm who loves, serves, and gives. It's easy for us to look at the world when we're being lorded over. We want to play things their way. We want to hire and elect our own lording over pagans who just champion our values and say, do it the the world's way, but win it for the Lord. The reality is, is as Christians, we need to wage a war in a completely different way. That's our next point when Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, that's a a well-known verse as a beginning from Paul on how to operate in the spiritual realm. You know the full armor of God. Paul uses distinct metaphors drawn from armor. But whenever he returns to the physical, when when he returns to, here's what you need to be doing in this battle and here's what I'm doing, we get a picture. Paul then says, you need to worry along with the rest of the world on each and every event. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says you need to try your hardest to make social change, to make legislative change, to debate non-believers about politics, to be about causes unrelated to the kingdom. No, he doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says in 18 through 20 of that same chapter. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, says Paul, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as all I have to speak. Jesus was saying two current events, tragic, big news, evils behind it. Our focus needs to be repentance of sin. Paul is saying big battles going on, spiritual battles, more concerning to us than all the physical battles and altercations. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. And your part is this, pray for the saints. Pray for the spread of the gospel. These are two outliving features of repenting of sin. Jesus in his context and conversation was talking about a personal examination of our state of sin. Paul talks about kingdom efforts, seeing others to come to that same state of examining their own sins so that knowing it is Jesus that forgives them and saves them. Praying for Paul to remain faithful to preach 
the gospel boldly. We should pray for pastors and churches and preachers to remain faithful to preach the gospel boldly. So how does all this look in 2020? What does all this mean concerning 2020? Here's what I wonder for churches if they approach Jesus and they say, Lord, what about coronavirus? What about the George Floyd protests? What about more and more legislation being passed to hinder our rights or to condemn what we believe? And here's what I think Jesus would do. He would redirect our focus. You know, often we wake up in the middle of just hard seasons, hard years, and and if we're morbid, we say, there's no use living. <laughs> I'd just rather take my life. <laughs> and some some less than morbid people might not take it that far, but we might just say, can I find a rock to hide under? Maybe a permanent vacation home. Or we might just do something more easier and say, I'm glad I live in Woodland. While coronavirus did have some of its effects up here, let's just hope and pray. Protests don't. We'll give it a few months. It'll go back to normal. At the heart of the gospel of discipleship is a call to do exactly what some of this suggests, but there's two parts to that call. You know, when the Bible repeats something, it's usually important. The Bible repeats four times drastically the last days of Jesus culminating in the cross, not to mention all the references to it here and there everywhere else. One other thing, apart from Jesus' passion and death and resurrection, is Jesus' call to discipleship. That's in every gospel account. Luke, in fact, repeats this twice, so it's five times in the Bible, this truth. I'll share it with you from Mark's, Mark 8.35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. 2020 could be a year for you where you can mark it. That's the year I lost my life. Because it's easy to lose your life when the world doesn't have much to offer. 2020 is an act of grace in that sense. Has the world ever been less desirable for you? Jesus is again redirecting the attention and the affections here and he's saying... There is no salvation. There is no saving. There is no giving of life. There's no purpose. There's no wind in the sails in the ocean of life. All of that is to be found in Christ, in His gospel, and in His mission. Redirection. What about Pilate and the slaughter and the tower? And Jesus says, what about our own sins and the reality that we, that we have worse things to expect should we not repent? What about restoring the kingdom and Romans rule over us and the conquered, defeated lives that people who live under tyranny? And Jesus says, what about the Holy Spirit and the power that he gives to bring the gospel to the world and save them from the greatest enemies of sin and hell and the wrath of God? And so how do we operate in a world where we've lost our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel? We put on the armor of God, we pray for the growth of the church, and we work for the growth of the church. Let me say it this way. We have a new world to work in. We have a a new kingdom that we're a part of. And the beautiful thing is that it's a world within this world. And it's a kingdom within and above all other kingdoms. And so, to redirect your attention, you need to think differently than the world tells you to think. And since it's the news that might be bothering you, I, I came up with an acronym with NEWS for Kingdom Living for a lost life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Operate out of news this way. Start with N, no fear. Don't let the news, don't let life 
bring you fear because you are in Christ and Christ is a redeemer. Do you know this church? Christ is a redeemer. He will redeem coronavirus. He will redeem all the protests. He's going to redeem 2020. He has redeemed you from your sins. He can redeem all of us from all the problems in this world, which means a lost life in Jesus starts with no fear. No fear. In is no fear. E is engage God's mission. I say this often, and I'm guilty of this often, but the life in Christ is not a life of church, Bible reading, praying, and that's it. How are you engaging God's mission? And I want to say this too, that if you're afraid to do so, to engage God's mission, fall back and in. (laughs) No fear. Because even if you suck at engaging God's mission, God's going to redeem it. (laughs) And you say, how to engage God's mission? Whenever I might not even meet someone this week that doesn't know Christ, or at least someone that I have a good enough relationship to talk with him on that level. You know, our church supports missions organizations called Evangelical Friends Mission. We support a local gal named Sarah through Reach Global Crisis Response. Do you make money that they could use? Part of God's mission is caring for the saints. Are there saints in this church or maybe connected to this church but not in church every Sunday that could use your love? Is it more important to stay at home glued to the TV and to the newspaper and sweat bullets or visiting a real person across your neighborhood that could use some company? Engage God's mission. N is no fear. E is engage God's mission. W is wage war God's way. Wage war God's way on your knees in prayer, reading the Bible, praying the Bible. And waging war God's way has everything to do with engaging God's mission. I hate pithy statements and profound statements and abstract statements because we think they're less meaningful than they are. But I don't know how I can get across to you to the truth that Paul brings out in Ephesians 6, that whenever you pray, it has very real, tangible, profound, deep, life-altering impact. Prayer does. In the Scriptures, it peels back for us every now and again. In Daniel 9, we're told that Daniel goes to confess sins and he prays on behalf of his people. And an angel tells him, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Prayer is moving an angel. Wage war God's way. Pray for the saints. Pray for His mission to continue. Pray for the hearts of non-believers and unbelievers to be softened. Pray for saved souls. Pray for seeking God's will on how you can be part of His kingdom in Woodland. But also pray knowing that praying itself is your part of being in His kingdom. N is have no fear. E is engage God's mission. W is wage war God's way. And finally, S Though it might sound funny and cute, it's oh so important in our day and age. S is for smile. Smile. In our time, 2020, in our world, it's so important to smile. And I'm not going to be mean and say smile because I told you so. But if you truly grasp who Jesus is, what He does, that you can have no fear, that you've been purchased by God through blood to engage His mission and wage a winning war, I dare say you should have a reason to smile. You can smile in a world that's held captive by diseases and riots because you serve a Redeemer who can and will turn it on its head. You can smile in a fallen world because... The curse is being lifted through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. You can smile in a world of darkness if the light in you is a Holy Spirit 
that births love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Saturate in Christ and saturate in His Word. Saturate in carrying out His tasks and in so doing, I believe you will have reason to smile. In closing, I want to give you an illustration. We're already talking about a waging war, so here's the illustration. You ever heard of moles in a war? Here's how the dictionary puts it. A spy who becomes part of and works from within the ranks of an enemy governmental staff or intelligence agency. We live in a world in some part is still held captive by the enemy, Satan, the prince and the power of air. And Satan has some plans for this world, and he is an enemy army trying to carry out those plans. You and I are living in exile. We're in the enemy's camp. We're in a world and under an army that has plans for this world. Well, what do moles do? Moles ignore the orders of their commanding army's officer because they're following the order of their own nation and their own kingdom. We have the great privilege of knowing that we're going to win as well. So while the world is operating one way, you and I get to operate another. Because we got more information than the world. We got the right information that the world doesn't have. And so when the, the news in the world is in bad shape, practice the news of the kingdom and have no fear. Engage God's mission. Wage war God's way and smile. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in your darkest hour, which is the darkest hour of the universe, whenever God was dying, you still had a plan. And it was a good plan. You saved the world through it. We face our own darkest hours, whether they be personal or private or public and even worldwide at times. You still have a plan, and it's a good plan. It's a redemptive plan. But furthermore, I love what you say to us in John 15, that we're not slaves unfamiliar with what's going on, but we're friends. We know what's going on. We know that ultimately you desire to bring about good from every sort of evil and that you can accomplish that. And you give us the privilege of being part of that plan to bring it about. We all love superheroes because it's about someone outside of the world and outside of the problems, fixing the world's problems. Father, you are the greatest superhero and you call us in some small way to be part of your team to do that. Father, you've given us plain directives in your word of what we should be about at all times. To be about the Great Commission. So, Father, help us to continue to be about that. To look for opportunities to engage your mission, to wage war your way. Father, we thank you again for this privilege. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would enter us and do these things that you've called us to do. We thank you again for the forgiveness of sin through Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.